Welcome to Caregiving Club On Air. This podcast is dedicated to the millions of family caregivers who want wellness tips and self-care solutions, who seek expert advice, and who want news about healthy aging and how to create well-home design in our forever homes. I'm Sherry Snelling, a corporate gerontologist, author, and educator, a TV interviewer, host, and news commentator. I'm joining you from Southern California, where our interviews and news take us all across the country to explore the many ways to help you on your caregiving journey and to lift you up here at Caregiving Club On Air. Welcome to Caregiving Club On Air and our episode on birthday wishes for Mrs. Rosalind Carter, National Wellness Month, and our focus on buddies, beaches, and books. I'm your host, Sherry Snelling, and I'm very excited. We have a couple of really tremendous guests today, one who is very special to me. You're going to meet her first, and that is Mrs. Rosalind Carter, former First Lady Rosalind Carter, who celebrates her 95th birthday on August 18th. So it's a perfect episode to have her on talking to us about how she built the Rosalind Carter Caregiving Institute and really was the first national figure to identify caregiver burnout. Then we're going to go into our caregiver wellness news. We're going to focus on August 8th, which is National Friendship Day, August 9th, which is Book Lovers Day, August 15th, which is National Relaxation Day. And then, of course, we're going to end it with August 30th, which is National Beach Day. And we're going to tell you how to bring all of these wonderful things together, give you tips on great books and how to get those respite breaks and how to also spend some time at the beach if you get a chance this summer or at least be near some you know, beautiful blue water. And then we're going to go into our second really great interview, which is with Tia Newcomer, who is the CEO of Caring Bridge, which is a perfect segue from our National Friendship Day. She's going to tell us all about Caring Bridge and how to create those circles of care around you when you're caregiving. And then we're going to dive into some really exciting news going on in Well Home Design and also give you some biophilic design tips on a budget and talk about ways to keep our homes and our loved ones' homes cool and comfy during the hot summer months. And then, of course, as always, we're going to end with our Me Time Monday wellness hack, which in honor of Mrs. Cotter, we're going to talk about how to beat caregiver burnout. So with that, let me go to my introduction to our very special interview with former First Lady Rosalind Carter. So we're going to kick off this episode in a very special way with a very special guest, former First Lady Rosalind Carter. And I wanted to give you just a little bit of the backstory to this interview that I actually did with her about 10 years ago. So it was about 10 years ago when I was writing my first book, A Cast of Caregivers. And I was doing a lot of interviews with different experts in caregiving to help caregivers understand the journey they would take and all the resources out there. But I also interviewed some high profile people to share their stories in caregiving to try to help caregivers understand they're not alone, and also the different types of ways that we become caregivers, whether it's for special needs children, whether it's for a spouse, whether it's for an older parent or grandparent, whether it's for a sibling, or whether it's for a friend. And I interviewed some really fantastic, wonderful people, and I have to do a shout out to those who are in the book, Holly Robinson-Pete, which was the first interview that I did, and Joan London, Jill Eikenberry and Michael Tucker, Sylvia Mackey, who cared for her NFL Hall of Fame husband, John 
Abernathy, Mark Helgenberger, also David and Alan Osmond, and Alana Stewart-Hamilton, who cared for Farrah Fawcett the last three years of her life. So all of them just had terrific, wonderful, inspiring stories. But during this time, I also reached out to former First Lady Rosalind Carter because She's always been known as really the pioneer in caregiving. She identified who the caregivers were. She also was the very first national figure to talk about burnout and the emotional health and mental health side of caregiving. And she formed and created the Rosalind Carter Caregiving Institute at Georgia Southwestern University, which is still to this day, I think, the only caregiving school in the country. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's still true. But anyway, she was a big get. She was my moonshot. And I reached out to her and everyone said, oh, you're never going to get her. You won't even get a response from her people. And lo and behold, I did get a response. And it was right before she had her 85th birthday, as I said, and she agreed to an interview. And I was, quite frankly, I was blown away, but I was also so honored and so grateful that she would take the time, somebody like me, that she didn't know, you know, from anybody, but she wanted to get the word out about caregiving. So we spent about 20 minutes talking and she talked about so many different things that are still really critical today. And I just, I revisited that interview recently because her 95th birthday is coming up now on August 15th. And I reached out to her again and I asked her if she would be okay if I use that original interview for my podcast. And of course, graciously as she did, she gave me a gift on her birthday by first of all, giving me that interview 10 years ago. And then 10 years later saying, yes, please go ahead and use it on your podcast. We want to help the caregivers out there. I also have to say that when I wrote my book, she wrote me a lovely testimonial when it was published. And I, again, I can't express the gratitude that I have for someone who like her is on the national stage, is doing so many things for so many people, but took the time to really support me in what I was doing and really, in a way, inspire me to keep going. So with that, I wanted you to hear this wonderful interview with former First Lady Rosalind Carter. Oh, hello, Mrs. Carter. I can't tell you how honored I am to be interviewing you today. It's such a privilege to talk to you. Well, again, thank you so (laughs) I want to thank you again so much for making the time today to talk to me. We're doing a wonderful article on the Rosalind Carter Institute, and it's for Next Avenue, which is a website created by PBS for baby boomers. And I write a lot of articles on caregiving, and so I wanted to really showcase what you've done with RCI. And then also to commemorate, I know you have an upcoming birthday in a couple of weeks, so... A big one. <laughs> Can I ask you how old? Is it 39? <laughs> Well, congratulations. That's just wonderful. And so I wanted to just ask you a couple of questions. I know we only have a few minutes, but because you've been such a pioneer in this whole area of family caregiving, I wanted to, to get your perspective on, you know, I know you've been working in, in the mental health area for about 40 years. What are the strides that you've seen? What are the things that you think are wonderful that have happened or changed to help family caregivers over the last 20 years or so? Well, my work with caregiving actually um, grew out of my mental health work because when we came home from the White House, the local state university had a small endowment for mental health program. 
But by the time it took a few years before I thought I could work with him, and by then I already had a good mental health program at the Garden Center. So we began with the idea of working with those caring for people with mental illnesses because having worked on the issue for so long, I had seen so many families and, and people just burdened with caregiving those with mental illnesses. But when we had the first meeting in small communities like ours, People knew that there was a program for caregivers, and others wanted to come, those that were caring for people, elderly, and others with physical disabilities. And so, in the, from the very beginning, it spread. And I called about 36 organizations, like the Heart Association, the Lung Association, or whatever it's called, and the different diseases, and then the American Medical Association, Nurses Association, and nobody was working on caregiving, and they all said it was really needed. So that's how we started, and then we got together a group, a quality caregiving coalition or something like that. I don't remember exactly what we called it at the beginning. But it was a different organization, the ones that I had called. And the reason we asked them in the beginning was because we were developing some really good programs for caregivers, and these organizations all had newsletters that could get the information out to the public. That's how we got started. And so almost everything has changed right. <laughs> um, since I began. And the main thing is that it's become a well-recognized issue. Right. And that we have legislation for respite care. Of course, we always want more. Right. <laughs> more help for caregivers. But everything has changed as far as having organizations that work and try to make life better for those with disabilities. But it's been a really wonderful experience to see how the issue has, has just become a major, major issue. And the one thing that worries me is that there are going to be more and more people who need care because our population is becoming more elderly and there are going to be fewer and fewer people to give care. So. A lot of caregiving is going to depend on families. Right. As it does now, but it's going to it's going to even be more critical. So following up on that, what are the things that you if you had your birthday wish for caregivers, what would be the things that you'd like to see over the next, you know, ten or twenty years that would change, that would make it even better than it is today? One of the problems with caregiving is that people don't want to admit that they're caregivers because they feel that it's something that just a responsibility to care for a mother or a grandmother. I think just for people to recognize the need for help and be willing to receive help, I think we always need more respite for caregivers. I think you're absolutely right. I think that need to self-identify is so critical so that we can get the services and support to these folks. I have a question, you know, I know that you were a caregiver for several people in your life, several family members, including when you were a young girl helping out with your your siblings for your mom. Did you ever identify yourself as a caregiver in any of those? No. Did you? <laughs> I didn't identify myself as a caregiver until I got involved in this and I realized that I had cared because I cared. My father died when I was 13. I was the oldest of four children and I helped my mother. He he died about three months after he was diagnosed with uh, leukemia. Right. Um, I'm so sorry. And, but then what comes afterwards is so important, too. And I think that caregivers 
there's a need for help with those in a grieving process also. Right. And, and, but then I had, well, I think the reason it dawned on me was because when we began our program, the head of the Department of Psychology and Sociology at the university was head of the program. And by the way, we're the only university with a caregiving program, which is kind of interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Okay. And the reason he thought about working with people who were caregivers was because he was having a terrible time, long-distance caregiving with his parents. Who were, he was here in Georgia, and they were up in one of the northern countries, Wisconsin or Minnesota, I'm not quite sure now. He was having a terrible time, and he would tell me that his mother called and said something. So, so when I was caregiving for my mother, she died in 2000, and she was in, she got to, where she wouldn't, couldn't walk. Okay. And couldn't walk, and we had to put her in the nursing home. Right. And the nursing home was one that was developed by the nurse in Plains, who she called when I was gone. She called for help. So it was, it was a good place for her to be, woman was always saying. But she would call me, and every time I would come home, she would say, where, where are you going next time? <laughs> So you provided caregiving then for a lot of those family members? We helped as much as we could. Of course, we were with one sister lived in North Carolina, and we just stayed in touch with her and went to see her occasionally. But the others were here in Plains, and okay. so we were just kind of wrapped up in helping us. Right. Taking care of, although we were never totally tied down to them like I was with my brother and then my brother. I cared for him after my mother died in 2002, I think. He had a stroke, lived in Ohio, and he was divorced, and his boys were grown and lived away. And so he came to Blades, and the nursing home right around the corner from me, and I was responsible for him, too. So I've seen great families to be educated and know where to go for help. Right. It is so crucial. Right. One of the things I focus on, Mrs. Carter, is that need for caregivers themselves to take care of themselves, self-care. And it's so difficult. It's hard for them to find the time. And so are there any suggestions that you've made to caregivers along the way of how can they find that time to take care of themselves? And why is that important? Well, that's the first thing we ever focused on back in the 1980s <laughs> because we did a survey at the university with students going to, with professional caregivers to call on family caregivers and then students going with family caregivers to call on professional caregivers. And the burnout was, in fact, our first program was on burnout. So crying in the audience saying, this is the first time I've ever had now, been with somebody who knew what I was going through. And so what we learned is that if the caregiver does not take care of herself or himself, then the quality of the care they can give to their loved one is diminished. 
Mm. And so they must take care of and have some life of their own. And I have also found that all caregivers feel guilty. Yes. And yes. when I did, I wrote a book, and then, which we're updating now. Oh, good. Late 1990s, but we're updating it now. But when I went on my book tour, it was amazing how many reporters that I talked to were caring for somebody that was responsible for somebody that was maybe a parent, uh, if not a parent, a good family member, then they were knowledgeable about a good friend that they were trying to help. And the main message, I think, that we have to give these caregivers is to take care of themselves. I had a story in my book about a woman who was totally tied down with her mother. She liked to work in the garden. Her mother had liked to work in the garden. Mm-hmm. And so she began taking photographs of the flowers and the trees inside for her mother to see. She would take them and show them to her mother. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon she had a business in the house selling her photographs. Oh. And anything that a caregiver, I don't want caregivers to feel guilty if they take some time for themselves, which is what happens so often. Right. And I think that made the most impact. I would have people on the book tour calling me when I was on a radio and getting my message out, saying, I'm so glad you said that because I feel so guilty. Right. And, but don't feel guilty. Right. Do something of your own. Have some little time for your own. The caregivers deserve it, and they're better off health-wise and emotionally also because terrible stress sometimes when for caregivers. Right. If they do take care of themselves. Right. So let me ask you, I call it me time in terms of the self-care that I try to help caregivers understand. How do you find your me time? What What are the, the special pleasures that you take that are just for you? Well, I take exercise. Right. <laughs> and I breathe. Okay. And, um, I, I have a very nice lifestyle. And actually, we're about as busy as we've ever been with our progress at the Carter Center and Rosie Carter Institute. And I also work with having every child by two program trying to get all babies immunized by the time they're two. I've been working on, on that as long as I worked on mental health. Right. I've worked on immunization. Right. But, and we try to keep all this kind of free. Right. So I'm having a really good time. Oh, good. Well, <laughs> I have a few. I think we only have one week when we have something to do in August. It's very nice to be at home. As it should be for your birthday month. I read that you uh, loved fly fishing and bird watching. Do you still do that? Yes. Okay. And we swim. Okay. And birding often. Right. Oh, wonderful. I think the place we're going in August, we're going to be away in August, actually, six days, I think. It's fly fishing, which is another great hobby. Oh, wonderful. That sounds great. Well, going back to the mental health, you've been such an advocate, and I know RCI has done some studies with veterans on PTSD, and I've written about that. And I think yes, the wounded warriors and Alzheimer's is getting so much more attention now with the National Alzheimer's Program and plan that just passed. Do you feel that we are starting to see a lift or a decrease, if you will, in the stigma around mental health issues? I think we have a long way to go, but I believe it's lifting just a little bit. Okay. (laughs) There was a poll done recently that showed that stigma is lifting for depression. Okay. But on the other 
illnesses, but on the major illnesses, mm-hmm. schizophrenia, mm-hmm. Um, depression, I mean, um, bipolar. Right. Anyway, on the major condition, that it actually is sliding back a little bit. And the reason that the poll, what the authors of the poll say is because the more they learn, more people learn that there's something wrong with the brain, they become uneasy about it. Right. And about being around people. So I'm concerned about that. And then we have things like the young man in Arizona recently. Right. Went into the movie theater. Oh, yes, um, yes. Those things really, fear factor is the main issue now. Right. Uh, to continue the stigma. Right. Yeah, it's so difficult. I guess it's because we, you know, when we see somebody who has an, a physical illness, we understand what we might need to do to help. But with brain-related issues, it's a wound we don't see necessarily. So it's very difficult. You know, if there's any other message that you would give to caregivers, what would be your, your parting message right now to them? I think the main thing I can tell them is to take care of themselves and not feel guilty about it. Okay. Everybody needs some little compartment of their own. That, that, uh, and this is so important for caregivers. Right. There's one other thing I would like to say about the future, and that's to, we did um, recommendations on the future. Right. We have a really close working relationship with the age one aging. Right. And we took to them for how to avert a caregiving crisis. If we could get those five things, that there were five that the RCI put together, five, if we could get all of those things done, it would be so great for the picture. Right, right. Well, I will definitely include those as part of your wish list. That's wonderful. Again, I can't thank you enough for all the time this morning. I really appreciate it. And it's a thrill for me to talk to you because you've been one of my my heroes. <laughs> I really appreciate that. So that was such a wonderful interview. And again, I'm just so grateful to Mrs. Carter and really privileged to have had that conversation with her. And we wish her a very happy birthday on August 18th. And now we're going to change to and turn to caregiver wellness news. So we mentioned that August is National Wellness Month. And for many of you who listen to my podcast, you know I'm in the middle of writing my next book, which is Me Time Monday, the weekly wellness edit for A Wonderful Life. And the question that I'm answering in the book, along with many other things, of course, is what really is wellness? And what's interesting in all of the research that I've been doing and, you know, how I'm looking at things, first of all, as a gerontologist, we look at lifespan, which is how long we live. It's from, you know, the womb to the tomb, as we say. So from birth until death, we all have a certain lifespan. And what we're trying to do is make that health span equal our lifespan, right? I mean, we want all of our years to be as quality and as in good health as possible. But there's also something called well span. And well span is similar in that we do want our well span to also match our lifespan. And so when we start talking about wellness and well-being, this is not a new trend. It's been around for 3,000, 4,000 years, going back to the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans and traditional Chinese medicine and ancient Indian medicine and all different types of different cultures. And what's really interesting 
is that in my research among all of these ancient approaches to health, they all talk about the balance between basically the body, mind, soul, or what we call in gerontology, biopsychosocial framework, which is your biology, your psychology, and your sociology have to be balanced in order for you to achieve that optimal wellness. We kind of got away from that getting into the 20th century in particular, and I'm not going to get into the details. You can read the book when it comes out, but it's really interesting how the healthcare system really moved away from this holistic look at health and wellness and really went into more of a medical care model where we're only focused on the body. So when you think about wellness and you think about maybe, you know, nutrition and organic food, or you only think about physical exercise, that's only the tip of the iceberg. So what I have done in my Me Time Monday workshop is we focus on seven elements that I've come up with. So we certainly have the physical, but we also have the emotional, the environmental, the intellectual, the financial, because we know how much that impacts our wellness, our social and our spiritual. And all of those different elements have key components into what our well-being quotient is, how do we achieve optimal levels of wellness? And what I really love about the wellness movement, if you will, is that it is a self-empowered movement. It's all about personal responsibility over our bodies and our own health and wellness. It's also instructive, not prescriptive. And what I mean by that is when you think about healthcare right now, it's very prescriptive. It's like, you know, take this pill or, you know, do this, you know, rehabilitation exercise or whatever it is. And I'm not saying that those things are bad, but what I'm saying is that typically we're looking to an expert like a physician, like a doctor to tell us what to do. Wellness is very different. What wellness does is it gives you all of this education, all of this information, and then it says, okay, take this, absorb it, and now apply it to your life on a very personalized level. So for each one of us, our wellness plans, our wealth span is going to be very personalized. And I think that that is the approach that we need to take with health. It is not a one size fits all. You know, we've gotten into this routine of, you know, we should all do this and we should all do that. And each one of our bodies and our body chemistry and our lifestyles and, you know, our stressors are all different. And we need to take into account all of those seven elements that I just talked about in order to really work out what works best for each of us, how we do try to achieve balance in those seven areas and come up with our own wellness plan. So you're going to read a lot more about this and I'll be talking about this in other podcasts, but I just wanted to give you a little bit of that background on what I've been studying. And so as we get into National Wellness Month in August, we also have coming up August 15th is National Relaxation Day. And, you know, last episode, we talked about respitality. And so respitality is where you as a family caregiver get a break by either working with an outside agency or service to provide respite with care, which is typically kind of like companionship, to watch over your loved one, make sure that they're safe while you take a break. Now, respitality, though, is delivered in assisted living community. So for instance, it's always related, if you will, to travel. So if you're traveling to a destination and you can check out last episode, I won't go all through it again, but you can get respitality services in an assisted living that may be near your destination that you're traveling to. Or if you are traveling away from your loved one, you can have them stay in an assisted living and that's respitality. So 
there's a difference between respitality and respite. So respite is where, again, we're getting a break as the caregiver. So it's really, if you think about it, it's really for the caregiver. The respite services are really for the caregiver, even though the services are to come in and take care of your loved one. And this typically happens in the home, although there are respite care services that are delivered in different senior living communities and other places, but you're typically going to tap an agency. Now, there are a lot of free respite resources out there. For instance, if your loved one is a veteran, then you as the loved one caring for that veteran can tap into 30 days of free respite that the Veterans Administration will help coordinate and find the agency and find the person to come in. There's also going to be your friends and family circle. And we're going to talk to T, a newcomer in a minute with Caring Bridge, which is the perfect solution for getting that respite care. But I wanted to just kind of give you that insight on respite because one of the things about our wellness and our well span is that as caregivers, we know it's a marathon, not a sprint. We've got to get consistent breaks. When we're talking about vacations once a year, not good enough. You've got to get, in my mind, a weekly respite break, maybe even a daily respite break, even if it's just for five minutes that day, where it's just about you. You're doing something that fills your soul or brings you joy or just gives you that break that you can go take care, maybe take a few minutes and go get a pedicure or whatever it is. But we do have to take those respite breaks. They're critical because in order to run that marathon, you've got to pace yourself. And part of that pacing is knowing when to get your breaks. So it's really, really important. And respite services can be delivered for one hour, or again, they can be delivered over a weekend. Typically, if you're going to secure an agency and a lot of the personal care agencies, so whether it's something like a care.com or a CareLinks, or there's a lot of different agencies out there, but those are two that I know that I've worked with before. It typically runs between maybe like 15 and $25 an hour or so. So the next time somebody says, what can I do to help? say, you know what, I really need a break. Would you mind paying for some respite care services? And, you know, maybe they even they want to give you a massage certificate and get a respite care person to come watch over your mom or your dad for an hour. So those are just some little things to think about as caregivers, because as Mrs. Carter talked about, we want to help you avoid that burnout because it's just so critical to not let it build up on you and to get your own break and breathe and get that balance a little bit back into your life when you become a caregiver. Now, two other things that are happening in August, I think I mentioned up front. August 9th is Book Lovers Day. And as you know, we have our Caregiving Club Book Lovers list. So I'm going to have the link on the episode guide page with all of the books that we recommend in different categories, like how to communicate with your older loved one or your siblings over caregiving, how to care for a spouse, how to care for an older loved one, how to care for a special needs child, a lot of celebrity caregiving memoirs. And so we have a whole list of different books that are related to caregiving. But I wanted to, because we also have National Beach Day on August 30th, I also wanted to give you a little bit of a slice of our book lovers list. And these are some additional books that I would consider beach reads. These are the books that they're a little lighter. You know, they're not something that you have to take a pen and a pencil and a notepad and, you know, write things down out of the book that you know you want to remember or do or whatever. These are more just kind of float away, but they do have a caregiving theme. So here are my three book lovers list recommendations for you during National Beach Day and during the summer. The first one is funny, but also poignant. And it's called A Dog Walks Into a Nursing Home. And it's by Sue Halpern. And it's really about what we not only learn from our furry dogs and pets 
but also how older people can make you grateful and provide a lot of personal growth. And so it's a great book if you want to really feel inspired and if you want to see, you know, be spiritually uplifted in people who are older, our pets and how they are, you know, so gentle and so wonderful in terms of the therapeutic effects that they have and how we as younger generations can learn a lot from both dogs and older people. My second book recommendation is called A Bookshop in Berlin. Now, this is not a new book. It's It was actually kind of hit the bestsellers list a couple of years ago when I first read it. It was actually written, though, in 1945, and it was first published after World War II. And it is a woman who is French, and she had a bookshop in Berlin. And of course, as we know, with everything happening with World War II, she had to get out of Berlin. And it's her story about how she did that and the books that she carried with her. And it's almost like a spy novel in a way. It's really, it's exhilarating. It's got a lot of drama and it. it's got a lot of poignancy in it and in terms of the people that really helped her. And it's got a little bit of a twist ending, but it's a true story. And it's really a remarkable story about survival and resilience and you know human cruelty, but also the fulfillment and the success of the human spirit to rise above all. And I, I really highly recommend it. It was just riveting. I think I read it in one night, I couldn't put it down. And then I've got a couple more books. The Notebook, I think you guys have heard me talk about this movie before. So by Nicholas Sparks, you know, great storyteller. And The Notebook's main theme is a love story, but it's also a story about a woman who does develop Alzheimer's and how she writes down the love story of her and her husband and has him read it to her as she starts to lose her memory. It's a beautiful film, Ryan Gosling. I mean, you know, who, who could, you know, complain with that, right? But it's also a really wonderful book. And so I really recommend that. Great beach read. Now, similar to The Notebook, in some ways, maybe, is another love story by uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And he's a Pulitzer Prize winner, but it was called Love in the Time of Cholera. And, you know, this came out in the 1980s. And I remember reading it when it first came out. For those of you who love the movie Serendipity, the book plays a big role in that movie, which is really cute. But it's really poignant with what we just went through with the pandemic, because cholera, of course, was a global pandemic. And it's all about this love story of these two people who meet during this time when so many people were dying from, you know, this pandemic. They have to be separated, but how their love story spans the years and how as they get older, that reconnection and that youth love and exuberance and, and you know, filling the soul is still there. It is a wonderful story. Wonderful, wonderful, beautifully written book. I really highly recommend it. And then my last one is called, it's a very small book. So it's a short read. You might even be able to sit on the beach maybe all day and get it done, but it's not a very long book. It's called The Solace of Open Spaces. Now, for those of you who might be fans of Yellowstone, um, the cable TV show, which is set in Montana, this is kind of similar feelings because it's set in Wyoming. But what's really lovely about this story, and this woman wrote in a notebook, she's a documentary filmmaker, and she and her husband were documentarians, and they were in Wyoming doing this documentary. And they went back to New York, which is where they lived at the time, because he wasn't feeling well. And unfortunately, he had a devastating diagnosis, and he wound up dying. And she went back to finish the documentary, and then she stayed. And her friends in New York were saying, come back, you know, we miss you. What is there in Wyoming? There's nothing. You need to be around us and all this kind of stuff. And what she found was that solace in silence and in the beauty of nature 
and of being with people who were so authentic and they were so connected to the land, just learning a lot about the culture of Wyoming and rural spaces and open spaces. And so The Solace of Open Spaces, beautiful, beautiful book, highly recommend it. And unfortunately, I didn't write down the author's name, so I will have that um, link on the episode guide page. And, you know, I feel really blessed because I live near the beach. And so I mentioned it's National Beach Day on August 30th. If you don't live near the beach, don't worry, because as Mrs. Carter talked about, I bet she's out fly fishing around the time of her birthday. She's on the lake somewhere. And so, you know, find a lake find an ocean, find a a pond or a river or whatever it is. The powerful healing of water is really something, again, that I'm writing about now in my book on wellness. And we're going to do a little bit more on water and that healing property of water. But, you know, try to find something that just brings you back into that nature and gives you that feeling on National Beach Day. And kind of have your own national beach day. Now, the other thing that's happening is on August 7th, we actually have National Day of Friendship. I just spent some time with some college friends. It was just really wonderful because after all these many, many years since I graduated from college, I have this group of friends and we still get together at least once, sometimes twice a year and really catch up with each other. And it's lovely to see friendships that have, you know, stayed the course throughout all of these years and all the differences in our lives and all the things that are going on. And there was a great new study that was done in the scientific journal Personality and Social Psychology. And it talked about reaching out to friends that you haven't really talked to in a long time. What's interesting is the study found that the person who gets reached out to Typically, the response is surprise, but it's delightful surprise. Now, sometimes, you know, it depends on the relationship. But what's interesting is in the work of psychology that I do as a gerontologist, Paul Ekman in the 1970s identified the six basic emotions that are relevant to all human cultures. And they are happiness, sadness, fear, disgust, anger, and surprise. Anyway, what the study found is that there is healthful benefits in having a delightful surprise from someone you haven't heard from in a long time. And what they really recommend is don't reach out on social media. Social media, in some ways, we think about it as being like, hey, you know, we're really connecting with people, but actually there's a little bit of a disconnect. And so what you want to do is make it much more personal. You want to maybe do an email or a text or a phone call. And also don't set yourself up for feeling bad if the person doesn't respond or maybe doesn't want to see you. It's just the putting it out there in the universe that you're reaching out to somebody who maybe, you know, leave the message about what they meant to you or why you're reaching out. But I think it's really important for us to kind of maintain these connections because those people remind us of who we were 20, 30 years ago. And sometimes we need a little bit of a reminder of our younger lives, you know, as we get a little bit older and, you know, a little bit more tired and crankier and all this kind of stuff. But it's also nice too, as I said, to have those friends that did know you then that you've kept throughout your life and you've kind of grown with, and you've got those types of friends as well. So we know that one of the big things about living longer are relationships. And in fact, Harvard, I've mentioned this before, they've done the longest longitudinal study on what makes people live the longest. And the number one thing they found out after 80 years of doing this study among, as you can imagine, so many different people throughout all those 80 years, the one thing, quality 
relationships. And quality is really the important part. You know, Laura Karstensen, who's a wonderful researcher at Stanford University, she actually came up with a theory called the socio-emotional selectivity theory, which is something I studied when I was in gerontology school. But it's about how we prune our relationships as we get older. And the fact is that as we our time horizons are shrinking, we actually start to get down to a smaller group of people that really mean something to us. And we would rather spend time with those quality relationships than put ourselves out there and be at a rave or you know a bar or whatever it is. But that is something that happens. My friend Molly and I were talking the other day and we said, gosh, you know, we're kind of like, haven't talked to this person and didn't really keep this friendship going. And, you know, we felt like what's wrong with us. And then, you know, I told her about this theory. I go, no, we're okay. This is exactly what it is supposed to happen. As you get older, you keep those quality relationships. So anyway, just some things to think about, but you know, we've got respite breaks. We want to reach out to friends on national friendship day. You want to get your relaxation in with that respite break. And, you know, now we're going to turn to our second great interview for this episode, which is with Tia Newcomer, who is the CEO of Caring Bridge. Caring Bridge is a wonderful resource. And in fact, they have over 300,000 people that are active, that are using the site to help through caregiving, you know, journeys and get the circle of support from your friends and family that you need. And Tia is going to tell us all about how that happens with Caring Bridge. So here's my interview with Tia Newcomer. So my guest today, I'm so thrilled to have Tia Newcomer from Caring Bridge. And it's really interesting because way back when I wrote my book, A Cast of Caregivers, that came out in 2013, I actually interviewed Sonia, who was one of the founders of Caring Bridge, and talked about all of the great things that they're doing. So we're going to get caught up with Tia, who is the new CEO, and she's going to tell us all the things that are going on with Caring Bridge. So Tia, it's really great to have you on Caregiving Club on air. Welcome. Sherry, thank you so much for having me. We always start our interviews with asking where we're talking to you from. Where are you today? I am from today's sunny Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wonderful. I, I know it well when I worked with United Healthcare. <laughs> I was in, you know, Minneapolis all the time. So it's great to hear that you're having sunny days. I remember being there in January where I think it was about 40 below. <laughs> yes, I moved here from the West Coast. So this is all new to me. So uh, I am just happy that it's sunny and we have some warmer weather. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, well, that's wonderful. Well, as I mentioned, you know, Caring Bridge, you guys have been around for a while and I want you to have you tell us, you know, a little bit of the history, but also what you do, because you're really providing such a wonderful service that I think is so needed when we become caregivers, you know, so often it happens in a crisis, you know, something's gone on with a family member or a friend and we're caring for them. And there's so many things that we need to do. And you really kind of help provide that wonderful support. So give us a little bit of history of Caring Bridge and tell us what are the types of services that people can tap into, which by the way, are free. I want to say that up front. That's the wonderful part is that you're really offering all of this support for free. So tell us a little bit about Caring Bridge. Yes, it would be my honor to. So fun fact, we are celebrating our 25th anniversary. We were actually, our date of birth, so to speak, was June 7th, so last week. And let me give you a little context about that because it's actually a great founding story. You mentioned Sana marrying our founder. So 25 years ago on June 7th, a tiny, tiny baby, Bridget, was born. She was born prematurely. Unfortunately, she was with us for a short nine days on this earth. 
Sana was friends with her parents, and this is the founding story. Sana was given the task, you know, that daunting, how do I help as a best friend? And so the parents of Baby Bridget said, we've got this amazing network and community. Can you please help tell them what's going on with us? So 25 years ago, remember, internet was just starting. No Facebook, no Google, no cell phones. And so Sana made two phone calls 45 minutes each, highly emotional. And she's like, how am I gonna get through a hundred or more of these phone calls? And she's like, there's gotta be a better way. And so she went down to her basement and coded the first Caring Bridge. Again, before Google, before Facebook, I always say to Sana now, you are truly the first inventor of social media for good. And so that is the first Caring Bridge site and how we were founded. And so if I connect that to what we do today, 25 years later, you know, we are this place where we activate communities to help them really in one point and in one area to activate bridges of communication and help. And that's one of the hardest things when you're going through a health journey is how do you ask for help? It's hard to ask for help. And when you're trying to support someone, it's hard to really know how to help. And so Caring Bridge has been doing this now for 25 years. And I think that ask for and accept help has always been a bit of a challenge for caregivers for a variety of reasons. You know, one is we're so emotionally caught up in what's going on with our loved one. You know, people want to offer help and, and you don't have a checklist ready and say, oh, well, could you take these three things off my list? You know, because you're just in this environment. So you really provide that kind of consistency. And as you said, the communication, because being able to then communicate to your private community in terms of what's going on. And what I do love, you know, as a gerontologist, we study aging from what we call the womb to the tomb. So from birth until death. And so Caring Bridge really supports families, whether you have, as you mentioned, you know, a premature child, whether you have an older parent or a special needs child or, or whatever your journey is. And we mentioned, obviously, that you provide all this for free. One of the things that was really astounding as I went and, you know, just got caught up on what you're doing is you also are, you're international now. I mean, you're, of course, you know, nationwide, but how many communities and how many people are, are using Caring Bridge? Yeah, it's a great question. So I love this because 25 years ago, it started with this one site. And today we have over a million sites globally that have been created in activating that support. Also, 400,000 people a day interact with Caring Bridge and giving that support and or updating their loved ones. So we are in over 236 countries at this point. And if you look across that lifetime of our users, we've had over 2.5 billion people come to Caring Bridge. So tremendous impact. You know, we're looking at how do we grow that impact and reach even more people? We know they need it. And I think you, you touched on, yes, it's a point of communication and rallying that community behind you. We have tools like a, a planner tool, which makes it easier to ask for help. So you as a caregiver or a patient can go in and say, here's my calendar. Here are all the things that I need help with so that people can, one, it's visible and then people can opt in versus having to ask you, how can I help? Because that actually... We find through all of our research when you, and this is so hard because we all do it. We say, how can I help? What that does is actually puts the burden back onto the person going through this health journey. Not purposeful, right? But that's the honest thing that we usually say. So instead, we always guide people. We have a lot of resources on the Caring Bridge website that says, 
specifically, here's how I can help. I can do these things. And so we are activating those tools to make it easier for people to not only get visibility, but to be able to lay out exactly what are those things they need help with. And I love that because as you said, you facilitate the okay, let me think about it. You know, I need my son picked up from soccer because I'm going to be, you know, with my mom at the nursing home or whatever. So you kind of make that really easy for people rather than thinking about, well, who can I call that can do that? You kind of put this in that planner and then you've got all your wonderful volunteers who can then step up, correct? We've seen over the pandemic that caregivers have doubled in number to 53 million and that's unpaid caregivers just in the U.S., That's one in five adults who are currently caring for either and or older adults in the the household or children under the age of 18 and children under the age of 18. So with that impact, you know, being able to have a place like CaringBridge where you can not only share what you're going through, but activate that network for help has been more important than ever. Yeah, it is so important. I think one of the things that we don't recognize maybe when we become caregivers is how important those social circles are. You know, you have maybe sometimes a tendency to self-isolate or, you know, maybe there's certain stigma that you feel if your loved one has Alzheimer's or dementia. So we kind of step back from our social groups rather than embrace them. And I think you really help to bring those social groups together. Yeah, it's a great point. I actually, I would love to highlight, we have a partner named Archangels and they are doing some great work with the CDC and really diving into this phenomenon that's happening of caregivers in the U.S. alone. At the end of last year, we did a study with them and we had our Caring Bridge users opt in. They could opt in. It was it's called the Caregivers Intensity Index. You answer, it's very quick, it's three minutes or less. You answer some questions and it gives you your intensity score. Where are you, red, yellow, or green, on that caregiver intensity index, which is really a definition of stress. Mm. And we found some fascinating results compared to the national population of the research that that team has done. That one, I'll start with the positive. When you are using CaringBridge, we provide really unique buffers like If you know someone's in your corner, a community's activated, you're actually 30% less stress and less anxiety. And so that was like a a really great buffer that we're like, okay, we know we're providing value by activating CaringBridge. And that was feeling like someone's in your corner. We're almost 1.6 greater than the national average. So great news. That is great news. I love that. (laughs) And the other one that was huge was we're three times greater for people to feel like their family is connected to them. So you talked about that. Oftentimes it's easy to go inward and not have that, you know, not wanting to talk about things because it's hard what we're all going through. And so CaringBridge allowed that three times greater people to feel like, wow, I really feel connected and supported by my family. Yeah. The third one was not feeling super manipulated or stressed. And that was three times greater as a buffer than the general population. So if you think about, again, the ability to process your feelings through journaling, one, Mm -hmm. update your community and activate them, that helped you to feel less stress. Again, we we saw 30% less stress and three times the national average. So tremendous things that we're digging into to say, gosh, why should more people know about CaringBridge and use CaringBridge when they are going through a health journey. So those were fantastic results. I think that those are wonderful results. And, you know, again, as a gerontologist, I do a lot of study about, you know, social health and 
one of the things that the Harvard Adult Development Study showed us is that we will live longer and healthier when we have those confidants, when we have those quality relationships that we can rely on. And I think you're really helping to bring that together. You know, you just recently had a very special event, which I thought was phenomenal, that you did locally there. I think it was in Minneapolis in the mall. But tell us about the celebration that you recently had. Yes, because of this impact that we have seen over the last 25 years, you can imagine we're really good about identifying the points of light, honestly, that we create because people come to Caring Bridges. So because of our 25th anniversary, we said, let's declare June 7th World Caring Day. While we have all of these caregivers, the world needs caring more than ever. And so we really activated that and we will do it every single year on our anniversary and have World Caring Day celebrations. But it was really activating space one that showed the points of light and the stories of caring, whether big or small, you know, all the way to caregiving duties to something as simple as smiling at a stranger, which is at an act of caring. And so we encourage people to share those stories at worldcaringday.org. And then had a great event at the Mall of America where you could actually go into a light experience that showcased those points of light and the brilliance of millions of people supported through acts of caring. I love that. I just thought that was such a phenomenal event. And I wish I was in Minneapolis so I could be there in person. Maybe next year. We certainly here at Caregiving Club support World Caring Day and and really, you know, recognize the great work you're doing. Are there any other thoughts or things that you're seeing in your communities that might be helpful to our listeners to think about when it comes to you're on this caregiving journey? We know it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, what are some of the things that you would leave with our listeners about how to travel that journey? It's a great question and one near and dear to our hearts. We encourage people to communicate. And you know, whether you use Caring Bridge or not, the number one thing that actually reduces stress and helps you, and it's the hardest thing, is communicate with people. Communicate, and it could be a small circle, it could be a large circle. But I think the point is, is don't be scared to share. And you control the privacy of that, right? Again, it could be a big network or a small network, or even sometimes just the act of journaling itself helps. So that's number one, share. Number two is take care of yourself. And that is the hardest thing as a caregiver to remember is that you can't do your job well, meaning caregiving, if you're not healthy yourself. And it, and I know a lot of people are like, Tia, I just don't have time or it's so intense. And that's where sharing with people and saying, can you come over for an hour so that I can take a bath or that I can take a walk? or whatever that thing that you need to do to take care of yourself. So we always say you have to carve out the time to take care of yourself. So share and take care of yourself are the two biggest things that we see as direct implications positive to their caregiving and and health journey. Well, we love that. You're speaking our language here at Caregiving Club because we focus really on that self-care piece. You know, what are the simple, easy, cost-free ways that we can help caregivers just get a few moments back for themselves, you know, every day, hopefully every week. I love the stuff that you're doing. I've always been a huge fan of Caring Bridge. And, you know, we're really so honored to have you on today to talk to us about this. I want people to know where can they find you and, you know, how do they sign up? And again, we want to say it's free. I think we have to say that because right now, given what we're all going through with the economy and everything, if we can find any discounts or things that are cost-free that really help us out, those are the things that we're searching for. So tell us how we find Caring Bridge. Absolutely, Sherry. So go to caringbridge.org. 
And there it's literally three simple steps to start a caring bridge site and start communicating and getting those benefits from sharing. And I will highlight too, it's free because we are a nonprofit. And so for 25 years, we've been a nonprofit. We are sustained by small and large gifts. So while we are all facing this, this economy and the implications, we definitely appreciate support. So again, caringbridge.org and the team is doing some great things to keep iterating on how do we support caregivers because we know it's just so important. Right. It's really the, the support of our communities is caregiving if you look all around us. So absolutely. Is it mobile as well? Can you get it on your phone? Yes, we do have an app. It's a great experience there. And then, you know, if you're doing more long form, you can go back and forth. They sync up. So we have an app and caringbridge.org. And you'll find all of the downloadable app on our website, as well as how to start a site. Great. Well, again, Tia, it's just great to meet you and to have you on our episode today. And I just want to encourage people who are listening to please check out Caring Bridge if you don't yet have your circle of support created. And also, if you've been a caregiver, we know a lot of caregivers like to give back even after their caregiving journey is done. So if you have, you know, a few extra dollars and help out Caring Bridge to keep providing the service, it's really really a wonderful thing. So Tia, thank you so much for being on Caregiving Club on Air. It's just been a joy talking to you. You too, Sherry. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too. So for our Welcome Design News, we're going to do this one a little bit shorter today because the episode's running a little bit long. We had two wonderful, great interviews, of course. And so I promise to give you a little bit more on the Wilhelm Design in our next episode, because for that episode is going to be really fun. We're going to be talking about grand millennial design, which is a big trend, and also coastal grandma style. If you haven't heard about it, coastal grandmas are cool. But let me get into the Wilhelm Design News for this episode. So really big news, actually, I think, is Pottery Barn which I'm sure many of you know and love all of their stuff. They just announced a whole line of furniture and decor and other things called Assistive Home. Now, what this is all about is kind of universal design, but it's all about accessibility that we would normally think of for people who have limitations, maybe physically or with mobility or struggle with, you know, maybe certain knobs and different types of things that we talk about in universal design and in well-home design. You've heard me talk about this a lot. And so this announcement, which just got made, couple of weeks ago was pretty exciting because I'm starting to see all of these big brands that are really recognizing, you know what, we have, of course, a growing older population who wants to live in their homes as long as possible. We also have a lot of people with disabilities who want that independence of their own home or their own apartment or whatever it happens to be. And so why shouldn't all of these products just be natural fits for our, you know, our customers and let's make them as beautiful as possible? Because one of the things that's been lacking in a lot of these categories, you know, we talked to Jimmy Zolo a couple episodes ago about adaptive clothing. We've had adaptive clothing for a while, but it's ugly. He's obviously bringing all the fashion and the style back into it. And same thing with this announcement from Pottery Barn. So very exciting to see. We're going to have a link. Check it out. And I've reached out because I want to get somebody from Pottery Barn on the episode or on one of our future episodes. So hopefully we can look forward to that. The other thing is I promised that I was going to mention biophilic design on a budget. So I've written an article 
We're going to have a link on the episode guide page. But, you know, I talked so much about biophilic design. And then, of course, this is all nature elements, right? This is bringing nature into the home. So whether it's wood counters, other wood elements, it's living walls and a lot of greenery and plants. It's water elements. It's natural light, certain air quality and all those kinds of things that we think of that are really connected to nature. We're trying to bring that or at least create the sense of nature in the home. So how do you do that on a budget? Because I know that all of our wallets are shrinking these days. I've got that article for you. Also, if you want to check out green, which is a big part of biophilic design, just the green color and sense of greenery, which is calming and soothing, but also rejuvenating. It's also about living and life. Check out our Me Time Monday wellness hack from the last episode, because we focus on those healing properties and healthful qualities of colors of green. And then along the same lines with biophilic design, I came across a study that I thought was pretty fascinating, so I want to share it with you. And it was a study that was done among adults ages 60 to 85, and they lived in biophilic neighborhoods or even in, again, in rooms or homes that were designed with biophilic design in mind, so bringing nature inside. And so lots of trees and plants and other things, also walkways in nature that they could get to. And it actually reduced their Alzheimer's risk by about 40%. This is pretty significant. And we need to be taking note because whether it's our city urban developers and architects and building designers, so our office spaces and our homes, which we have control over, We really need to think through this biophilic design because there certainly are, in the same way that we would eat nutritiously or we want to move a little bit more, think about the environmental side of your wellness and your health, which is really what we talk about in this Well Home Design segment. So interesting study on that. And then I'll also have an article because I'm not going to go through it in too much detail here, but obviously hot summer months, you know, we're just really kind of getting into it and heat and dehydration, particularly for both our younger children and our pets, but also our older adults, you know, high sensitivities to dehydration. We need to be aware of what are the signs of dehydration? How do you note that? And what should you look for? And then what are ways to stay cool? Now I've got a little cost-saving tip for you. If you don't know this already, Fans are fantastic, okay? I know they sound a little bit old-fashioned, but what happens when you run your air conditioning in your home is that it's cooling down the entire house and the big room that you might be in at the time. And that takes a lot of energy and it takes a while to keep that stable if you've got your temperature gauge at a certain level. What you do need to do if you want to save some money is get some fans and particularly in your bedroom at night because you know as we're lying there we get warm if you have a ceiling fan or even if you have a standing fan that you can put next to the bed first of all the whirring of a fan is white noise we talked about white noise versus pink noise so white noise is still okay for some people to help lull you into sleep pink noise is better and we do a whole wellness hack on that and you can find that on our episode guide pages but you know the fan will cool your body And so it takes a lot less energy for the fan to get your body cool pretty quickly versus the air conditioning that's cooling the whole room. So it's really efficient if you're looking to save a lot on energy, whether it's cost-wise or eco-friendly wise or whatever, think about fans because they're really fantastic. I just thought I'd give you that tip. You can save up to 25% on your electricity bill by using fans, particularly at night. And so with that, we're going to go to our Me Time Monday wellness hack 
which in honor of Mrs. Carter is on how we can as caregivers beat and banish burnout. Welcome to the Me Time Monday Wellness Hack. I'm Sherry Snelling, a gerontologist and creator of the Me Time Monday program. This wellness hack is on caregivers and how we can banish and beat burnout. Burnout is when we cannot take it anymore and we either have an emotional meltdown or we feel too overwhelmed to go on. What we need to do is bring the stress response that we're having back to balance so that it does not impact our overall health and mental well-being. Mrs. Rosalind Carter, back in the 1980s, was the first national leader to identify caregiver burnout. Her famous quote, there are four types of people in the world, those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need caregivers. That quote really identified that we will be touched by caregiving in our lives. So we need to ensure that there is a self-care plan included in our caregiving toolkit. You know, Pew Research identified that 32% of caregivers report stress while caregiving. However, 88% of those caregivers also said that caregiving is rewarding. So what is burnout? Well, we often think of burnout as something that might be happening to us physically. We have fatigue and we'll go through some other things that you might be feeling. But really, a lot of what we're suffering from burnout is the emotional health side of burnout. And in fact, we know that, for instance, if you're caregiving for a loved one with dementia and you start to feel chronic stress, which leads to that burnout stage, you're actually feeling some health impacts. So you have about 24% more stress hormones. You have 15% less antibodies for your immune system to fight off viruses and colds and other things. And we have two to three levels of depression compared to the general population. Now, there was a study that was done during the pandemic that showed that caregivers felt an enormous sense of burnout. In fact, 72 to 80% of caregivers say they are suffering from burnout, particularly during the pandemic. So what we do know is that caregiving is a marathon, not a sprint. And if you think about that, a world-class athlete can run the 100-yard dash in about nine seconds, but you cannot keep that pace up for 26 miles. So again, think about this as a marathon, not a sprint. How do we help you pace yourself to keep your caregiving health and stamina alive while you're on this caregiving journey. So I mentioned that there's two sides, the physical side and the emotional side. So the physical signs of burnout are things like muscle aches, back pain, headaches, fatigue, exhaustion, certainly lowered immunity and frequent colds as we just referenced. Also insomnia or disrupted sleep, getting up several times during the night, high blood pressure that we don't even realize we might have, And then 10% of caregivers actually turn to alcohol or smoking or prescription drugs or other kind of bad habits to cope with the enormous stress. A few years ago, I worked on a caregiver health study and we found that 85% of women who were caregivers are in a downward health spiral. And most of them express these feelings of burnout. 
Now, the emotional signs of burnout, as I mentioned, might be a little bit more invisible to us, but they're also more impactful to what's happening to our bodies and our health. So things like sadness or depression or just, you know, spontaneous crying bouts, maybe you're more angry or irritable and you have outbursts with family or friends or coworkers, you find it hard to concentrate and focus, or maybe you even feel bored and you don't have any enthusiasm for anything. The other thing that we see with burnout is that we get cynical, we get disillusioned, and we actually feel hopeless. We also can go through feelings of grief and the five stages of guilt. And very often we hear caregivers say, I feel all alone. And this loneliness factor is a really important one because now we know a sense of social isolation and a sense of loneliness can contribute to a lot of cardiovascular health issues, but also risk for Alzheimer's disease later in life. So these are all things that we want to be able to address to keep caregivers well as they're on their caregiving journey. So, you know, even God needed a break and amazingly, it was seven days that he took that break, which gives us our, our week which is why we call this Me Time Monday, because we want caregivers to get a respite break every week, just like our creator. You know, it's the moments of pause when either we do something for ourselves or just be in awe of a beautiful sunrise or sunset. You know, these are the pauses that help to refresh our souls and also give us that stamina that we need to keep going. And you know, think about it. When you push yourself too hard, and you don't take a break, it really backs up on you. Or in this case, it starts to burn you out. But when you get those few minutes and you just take that time to do something for yourself, then all of a sudden you feel gratitude, you have a new attitude, you're getting back to what you were doing with a refreshed kind of look and feeling like, okay, I've got this, I can get this done. So getting those weekly breaks, and I even say daily breaks, but don't let it go past one week to get a respite break. Now, finding the breaks where we can accept the help that's maybe being offered to us is really tough for caregivers. You know, sometimes caregivers believe that no one can care for their loved ones as well as they can. And you know what? This is 100% true. Nobody will ever be the quality caregiver for your loved one that you are. But sometimes we get into this martyr syndrome. And what we need to say is, of course, no one can care for my loved one as good as I can, but I also need to care for myself because after all, if I get sick or if something happens to me and I can't be here for my loved one, then who will take care of them? So we have to prepare like a marathon or we have to get that energy and that stamina going in order to get up every day and perform all of the responsibilities of life including our caregiving responsibilities. So again, think about asking for and accepting help. Now asking for help is sometimes tough, but very often when we express that we're in a caregiving situation, we have family and friends who say, what can I do? And of course we don't have a list ready where we can just say, well, here's five things. Can you take care of these five things on this list? Although as you heard during our episode, Tia, newcomer with Caring Bridge, creates that easy way to get that help around you. But you know, accepting the help is something that is really important because it not only gives you a gift, which is the gift of respite, 
but it gives the person who's offering the help a gift as well. Now they feel, you know what, I'm doing something good for my friend. I'm really helping out here and I'm, I'm giving him or her a break. And these are really important things when it comes to our relationships. So think about, you know, just accepting that help, taking whether it's five minutes or five hours or whatever it is that you need to get that break, as I said, so that you can come back refreshed and renewed and have a sense of gratitude and a new attitude when it comes to your caregiving journey. We hope you enjoyed this explanation of our Me Time Monday wellness hacks and also all of our episodes on Caregiving Club. We have a new wellness hack every episode. You can check those out. They always occur the last 10 minutes of our episodes. And so I just wish all of you to take care and stay well. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of Caregiving Club on Air. Please listen to us on Spotify. Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and other listening channels. And check out all of the great resources and article links on our episode guide page at caregivingclub.com, the podcast tab at the top, or email us with any questions or comments at podcast at caregivingclub.com. I'm Sherry Snelling. Take care and stay well. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Caregiving Club on Air. Please listen to us on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, and other listening channels. You can check out all the resources and article links on our episode guide page at caregivingclub.com on the podcast tab. And you can email us at podcast at caregivingclub.com. Take care and stay well. <laughs>